Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. Well, it's been one year since the first person in China contracted COVID-19. And while cases are exploding around the United States, COVID-19 is pretty under control in central Virginia, at least for now. We talked to Charlottesville tomorrow about what has kept COVID cases low here and how health officials recommend we celebrate the holidays in order to keep it that way. I think that what this data tells us is that, you know, Charlottesville deserves a really big pat on the back for really just adopting these safety measures, owning them and, and, and making them part of our culture. We were taking it seriously and it, and it matters. And stay tuned for an interview with Barbara Campbell Thomas. She's a painter and multimedia artist based in North Carolina, and her work is currently on display at the Ruffin Gallery at UVA. In our next segment, we're going to talk a lot about our health district, which is currently called the Thomas Jefferson Health District. But in January, it's changing its name to the Blue Ridge Health District. So you might hear both names in this piece, but either name is describing the district of the Virginia Department of Health that covers Charlottesville, Albemarle, Louisa, Nelson, Fluvanna, and Greene counties. All right, we're joined today by Jesse Higgins, reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow. And you start one of your recent articles with a pretty startling map. There's the state of Virginia, and it's a sea of red. And then in the middle, there's a splotch of pink. What does that map represent? Yeah, that map shows the positivity rate for COVID-19 tests in each of the state's health district. And the positivity rate is the percentage of the COVID-19 tests performed in our health district that come back positive. So it's a it's a way to measure how pervasive the spread is when you compare one district to the other. It's just one way of measuring how we're doing, though. There's the number of cases per 100,000 people. There's the number of new cases per day, whether it's going up or down. So uh, a health official will look at multiple different indicators to see how um, one area is doing as compared to another. So what is the percent positivity rate in our health district compared to some of those more dark red areas in the state? In the Thomas Jefferson Health District, our positivity rate is 1.8%. For the entire state, the positivity rate is exactly 7% as of um, the latest data today, and today is Friday. When you include all of the cumulative data, like the the other measures, like the cases per 100,000, the new cases per day, in general, we're just doing better at managing the spread of COVID than most of the rest of the state. And for that matter, most of the rest of the country. So we have this stair step where, you know, the the country is doing, it's really rough right now. We're in this unprecedented surge. We're breaking world records for numbers of new COVID cases and deaths. But 
compared to that, Virginia doing pretty okay. And when you compare the state as a whole to our little area, we're doing quite well. So why is the percent positivity rate here in our health district so much lower than the rest of the state? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Um, when you're talking specifically about the positivity rating, one thing that might influence to make it even more stark is the fact that um, the University of Virginia here is conducting a lot of um, surveillance testing, which is not necessarily happening elsewhere. So when you have lots of tests, what happens initially actually is the positivity rate will go up because you're going to find a lot of cases that you wouldn't normally find. Um, The latest data, I believe, shows that about 40 to 45 percent of the people who are transmitting COVID have absolutely no symptoms. So you're going to find a lot of cases that you wouldn't normally find when you start increasing testing. But over time, If that increased testing is accompanied by very, very strict contact tracing, quarantining, and isolation, it will actually bring the positivity rate down. So that's impacting our positivity rate. So in addition to the positivity rate, like you mentioned, the rates per 100,000 and the case numbers in general are still pretty low here. Why do you think that is? Or the people that you've talked to, what are their theories? Everyone that I have talked to in the public health sector, the first thing that they'll tell you is, we really don't know. There's no way to really know. The second thing they'll tell you is it's probably because we're doing really good at physical distancing, social distancing, wearing masks, and following all of the other safety guidelines. I recently traveled to another part of the state, um, and it's going to be my last time out of Charlottesville for a while, because one of the first things that you notice when you get out of this little area is people, the number of people wearing masks, even in the required public, indoor public areas, is just not at all what it is here. It's very very uncommon here to see someone in a grocery store without a mask on. And that's just not the case elsewhere. So I think that what this data tells us is that, you know, Charlottesville deserves a really big pat on the back for really just adopting these safety measures, owning them and and, and making them part of our culture. We we're taking it seriously and it and it matters. Yeah, I mean, I saw somebody in the grocery store last week that didn't have a mask. It was one person. And I was like, oh, I've never seen this before. <laughs> exactly. It's very, Charlottesville has really taken this on and, and, and done it well. And that's just not the case um, elsewhere in the state. It's not the case elsewhere in the country. Yeah. So back in March and April, I was checking the Virginia Department of Health's website a lot, and it was pretty easy to see how many cumulative cases there were and where they were located. But now we are nine months into this. And so the cumulative data on the on the front page of the Virginia Department of Health's um, COVID-19 page feels a little less helpful. It's hard to know where the current outbreaks are. So where where do you recommend people look at to try to figure out where there are currently outbreaks or rising numbers of cases? That is 
a really good question. Um, and it's frankly one that I always ask the health department when I talk to them. Um, and usually what I get is, I'm told that's a really good question. Let me actually spend some time on our website and look for the data that you're asking for. Um, so even even health officials are having some trouble navigating where to find this different data. And, and to... It, it makes sense. There's a lot of data. There's a lot of different, they, they are releasing tons of information that's really important for us to know. But yeah, knowing where to look and how to find it. I think probably what I found the best thing for current stuff is to look at the seven day moving average. Would you agree with that? Because it's like the only thing that's not cumulative. That's usually the first thing that I look at also. The seven-day moving average, it's exactly what it says. It's the average number of new cases per day in any given seven-day window. So today's seven-day moving average would be the average number of new cases from the past seven days. And that's a little bit more accurate than just looking at the positive numbers on like one day, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, on one day, it could go up and down for various reasons, um, whether or not there were a lot of tests that day, whether or not the tests were reported that day. Um, so yeah, the, the seven-day average kind of shows a trend. So you can see the seven-day moving average for the state um, if you go to the main Virginia Department of Health website, which perhaps we should leave a link to in the description of this podcast, and then you scroll down past the map, you come to this graph that shows the seven-day moving average of new cases, confirmed cases, and probable cases since really the start of the pandemic. And it's kind of troubling when you look at the overall state because you'll see that it's moving up and it's higher than it has ever been. But then from that site, you have to do a little bit of magic to find our local numbers. Yeah, I'd recommend just Googling Thomas Jefferson or Blue Ridge Health District to get those numbers. It is super hard to find it through VDH's site. Yeah. Um, yeah. So back to Google. Let's actually do that. Thomas Jefferson Health District. Okay. Now that just takes us to the main page. And then you have to go over to the COVID-19 tab on the left, data portal. And here we are. <laughs> so if you look at that seven-day moving average on the Thomas Jefferson Health District page, you see a very different picture. It's uh, it's kind of stair-stepped, but it's going down. Right now it's going down, very different from the rest of the state. So we're doing something right. And would you say it's important for people to, to kind of keep track of this data and where it's moving in our area? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I definitely think that knowing where we are in this battle really against this virus is important for every individual as they make decisions about, you know, whether they're going to see family for the holidays, um, whether you want your child to go to in-person learning or stay virtual, but also just the little things that we do. What sort of shopping am I going to do? Are we going to go to the park? 
having an idea of where we are is is something that I certainly try to keep in mind in my own life. So one thing that you write about in your articles is that um, what's going on in the Thomas Jefferson Health District has been kind of closely following the trends at UVA. Um, And so the semester is almost over at UVA. Students have been encouraged to leave Charlottesville for Thanksgiving and then not come back until spring classes start in February. How do the people that you've been talking to kind of look back on this semester at UVA? How did it go? Well, that is a big question. If you look at just the numbers of cases among the student population, which UVA publishes daily in their COVID tracker, they publish the cumulative cases and the active cases. It spiked pretty hard um, in between when they opened in September until somewhere in October. And it started to look to a lot of us on the outside that they were going to have to shut down. Their quarantine space and their isolation space was filling up, which was pretty a really key indicator that they weren't going to be able to manage this. So what they did when they reached that critical point was say, okay, we're not we're not doing enough. We're not taking enough measures. So they imposed some really, really strict distancing and safety measures. At the same time, what the university did was seriously step up their testing, created surveillance testing. On ground, students are tested once a week. Off ground, students are tested every few weeks. And by doing that, they were able to quickly catch and quarantine cases before there was spread. And so watching the case numbers from the moment that, that happened until really just a couple of weeks ago, they fell enormously. I think they bottomed out a couple of weeks ago at around 14 active cases. Are there any indications that UVA students contributed to any outbreaks or significant numbers of cases in the community? Because I remember that being a really big fear. Um, when UVA was talking about bringing students back, people were really worried that the students were going to come back and infect, you know, people working in the dining halls and the housekeeping staff. And Yeah, they really were. Um, not that I know of. And I spoke this week with Ryan McKay. He's the incident commander for COVID operations at the Thomas Jefferson Health District. And he told me that because of the intense testing and the intense quarantining that UVA was able to do with their students, there effectively was no spread between the UVA student population and the rest of the community, which really had a big impact on how well we were able to do. So looking ahead a little bit, these thousands of UVA students are going to return to their homes all over the country, probably to a lot of places where COVID-19 is a lot more widespread. How does UVA plan to prevent those students from bringing it back to Charlottesville in January and February? I think their main tool in trying to keep students from these other areas from bringing COVID back is through a negative test. Students are going to be required to have a negative COVID test before returning to grounds. The hope is that that will stop it at the gate. Obviously, it's not foolproof. So once they are back, they're 
I imagine going to immediately start their intense surveillance testing like they have earlier this year, which was fairly successful, and in that way contain any outbreaks quickly that do make it back to campus. So at least for now, the big picture is that, you know, things have gone pretty well here over the fall. Um, But what impact might Thanksgiving and the other upcoming holidays have on these low numbers? Uh, Thanksgiving could just end this trend entirely. If you talk to public health officials, everyone that I've spoken to about this is extremely worried about Thanksgiving. Dr. Anthony Fauci with the National Institute of Health gave a a talk, a lecture to the University of Virginia health system this week. One of the things that he said was that what's emerging in places where cases are surging in the United States is that small, innocent family gatherings, dinners, indoors are becoming the main thing that is spreading COVID in the country. And let's be clear, cases are really, really surging. And if that is one of the main thing that's contributing to that, a Thanksgiving dinner is that times a thousand. So even even if people stay home and just gather with people who aren't in their household, like family members who they don't live with for a Thanksgiving dinner, that could majorly increase the number of cases here. So every public health official around the country, from the CDC um, to the state health department to our local health departments are all begging people, please don't travel, please don't gather. Like We have a chance to stop this, so let's do that now. Big sacrifice. It really is. I, I personally had to cancel Thanksgiving plans with the people that I love, and it was a, a heartbreaking decision, very disappointing. We're all in this together. We're all canceling plans. It's it's just what we have to do this year. It sucks. It just sucks. I think we can count on Charlottesville to do it. They Charlottesville has certainly stepped up so far. Have you heard anything about vaccination in this area? So that's another one of those stories that we're going to have to do next because there are a lot of rumors and a lot of um, people are very hungry for information about the vaccine. It's starting to look like nationally we're going to have um, at least one, perhaps two vaccines approved by the FDA before the end of the year. That hasn't happened yet, but it's looking probable. So what that rollout is going to look like is one of the things that I'm going to be looking into next week and then the coming weeks. What I can tell you right now is it's not going to be, there's a vaccine that we can all go get. That's not going to happen right away. There's simply not enough doses of it. I I believe the current CDC recommendation is that frontline healthcare workers are going to be the first to get it. So we could end up with the vaccine here for our hospital workers and perhaps not many other people. But yeah, I'll be looking into that soon and I'll bring you guys a story about what it's going to look like here. All right. Thank you so much. You are very welcome. Jesse Higgins is the lead reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. 
You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center. During these challenging times, the Southern Environmental Law Center is remaining strong and resolute in protecting the fundamental right to clean air and clean water and a healthy environment for all. In our next segment, we have an interview between Ruffin Gallery assistant Olivia Petty and artist Barbara Campbell Thomas. A series of her work titled NUMA is currently on display at the Ruffin Gallery at UVA. Described as equal parts collage, fabric, and sketchwork, Barbara Campbell Thomas couples paint with quilt work in NUMA. The result is a series of brightly hued paintings in which the linear forms sewn directly into the canvas are warped and softened. You can see photos of the work online and schedule an appointment to see them in person on the Ruffin Gallery's website. The title of your exhibition and some of the pieces is NUMA. So where does this title come from and what does it mean in relation to your work? It is an an ancient Greek word, actually, and it is basically, I think, defined as breath. It really stems from, there is one painting in the show that is that is called Numa, um, and it's one of the bigger ones, and it has all these sort of triangles that are sort of oriented in different directions almost. And um, I called it Numa because it, it felt as though it was really imaging this sort of like opening and closing or a kind of inhalation and exhalation. And I've been working with sewing and, you know, I sew the first layer and when I go ahead and stretch it, it softens the geometry of that initial layer. And so a square sort of almost looks like it becomes inflated or something. And when that first started happening, it kind of felt to me as though it was almost like the painting, the shapes were starting to breathe, like there was a sort of breathing process. But also this, this notion of a kind of elemental life-giving activity I think too at this moment like breath and the way in with which breath has this capacity to ground one just been thinking about that a lot and just the ways in which the act of painting is is also a very physical activity so like these all these ways in which I'm trying to kind of make these connections between painting and the body it's really beautiful the way that you know you're kind of like giving life to the painting itself and just a little bit about your process. How did you kind of figure out this technique of, of sewing or? Yeah, so it's relatively recent. It's been within the last about six years or so that it's it's started to become kind of important to me artistically. And then I would say in the last three years, I've really begun to integrate it into the painting. But my connection to sewing really comes from my mother. She taught me how to quilt recently again it was like 2014 I think when she taught me how to make a quilt and very immediately I was so attracted to the activity of specifically of of what is called piecing where you're you're taking shapes setting them side by side and sewing them together which creates that seam there's just this literal building of a surface um, that felt you know very satisfying physically as an activity but then pretty quickly I started to see that, you know, this could literally be the ground of the painting itself. And, um, you know, I experimented for a while 
and you know worked through some things that weren't weren't successful and then hit upon stretching this fabric over the surface and then sort of seeing again how those shapes were transformed through the act of stretching the fabric when i sort of saw the way that the sewn layer felt felt so rich like it it almost felt like a missing part of the work suddenly was there because there's an element of collage in the work and of course there's the painting and so like all three of those sort of physical elements are working in a relation to each other painting for me is a very it's very it's a it's a bodily activity you know I, I think about painting in very um kind of physical ways like what is it like to work with materials how does the movement of my hand impact the movement of these materials and so the sewing was the kind of final remaining physical process that just needed to kind of get figured out. I also really love, you know, the history of quilting is so linked to a history of, of female makers. And so I really am intrigued with the way that that sort of brings another definition to painting. It is so rich. I think that's like one of the first things I feel like I noticed kind of when I saw your work is how really layered it feels and especially the way it interacts with, with color. For me, color is a very intuitive interaction and, and, you know, a kind of very intuitive language. And the kind of color palettes will do kind of slowly shift over time. And so I, I feel as though they're really informed by just living my life, taking in what I see. And um, I feel like the, in, in the act of painting, there's a kind of filtering out process in certain colors you know, seem to emerge. Like I'll, you know, one thing I'll just say is like over this summer connected to the uprising, there were a lot of, of fires that were, that were said and that were happening. It felt so much like the country was on fire. And I was really thinking about um, just the imagery of, of all these fires and, you know, immediately gathered all the reds and oranges and warms that I kind of had and just started to work with all of those. And some small things got made and nothing really got finished. But that's an example of just really being spurred on by things I'm seeing a lot and just wondering, like, how do I process that as a painter? How would you say, like, the notebooks and the sketchbooks speak in conversation with some of your larger work, like in NUMA, and what role have your sketchbooks played in the evolution of your practice? The sketchbooks always predict what's gonna come. They are really a point in the overall studio practice that's really about exploration and experimentation. I really allow things that seem sort of strange or, or sort of feel like they're kind of coming out of left field for me, because I've kind of learned over time that something that I don't understand now may make sense, you know, in, in a couple of years or a couple of months. And what I've really understood is that the sketchbooks are the place where all of those new things show up first. And so, um, you know, like right now, there's a strong linear aspect that's in play in my paintings. And that showed up first in my sketchbooks. And at first I was kind of like surprised that I was so taken with making all these line drawings because that just was kind of new. And over time, that's become a really important part. And actually, like thinking about it, I think one of the notebook pages is open to one of the drawings that I was making in reaction or in conversation with the events of this summer. I think there was a full spread of just reds and oranges and just sort of piled up. 
I was just looking through when we were kind of setting up and the content of the notebooks, I noticed like a lot of quotes. You've touched on how your work is sort of inspired by the writings of mystics. So how have these readings influenced your work? I am an abstract painter and I've been an abstract painter for a long time now. And I really think that that engagement with abstraction for me is really so much about this commitment to exploring ways to give form to what is unsayable, getting back in a way to like the, my thinking about what painting is, painting itself is this sort of meeting of that which is adamantly material. So paint and canvas and, you know, the manipulation of that with something that feels adamantly immaterial you know, the medium itself is this kind of coming together of, of those seeming opposites. I've just found it a really perfect medium, like in concert with abstraction, to think about what does it mean to be a physical being who is engaged in questions of spirit? I read a lot of theology um, within the Christian mystical tradition, but actually mystical traditions within pretty much any of the world's um, great religions are really fascinating to me. All of that interest in writing is is really a way of trying to figure out like who we are, like who we are in this universe. And, and the notebooks are a place where I gather the things that really rise to the surface that seem like something I want to think about more or ponder or, or that are confusing to me. So the notebooks are really so valuable for me. Like I'll never sell them or anything like that. Like they're such um, an intense record of my thinking. Just a little bit more on like your studio practice. Um, how did you get to sort of like establishing your artistic identity? Were there any sort of pivotal moments or kind of challenges that you faced along the way into finding that? I would say there are a couple, like, you know, when I was a, an undergraduate student, I think it was about my junior year that I moved from working with representational imagery to working with abstraction. And that shift was so important. It happened at this period of time in which like the things I was trying to say in the paintings were becoming more and more important. And I was realizing that I was trying to say them too literally. I remember I had a a really important studio visit with um, a painter and um, just through the things that she said, I, I realized that, you know, the ideas I was working with were, were so important and I was holding them so tightly, you know, like almost like when you hold sand, you know, tightly in your, in your hands. And of course it just all falls away. And so I had to almost like get at the ideas that I was thinking about, like almost as though I was coming in through the back door, not as literally. And, and so abstraction started to make a lot more sense. It just felt more free and open and everyone has their kind of you know, different bent of what, what makes sense. So that was really important. I would say that when my, my first son was born in 2005, and that for me was a really important moment because it kind of coincided with a real shift in my studio that was also connected to just like, kind of like sort of existential, like, oh my gosh, like, who am I now that I'm now that I'm a mother? And like, what does that mean? And I don't know, it just initiated this like intense period of self-reflection at a moment when there was much less time to make work. And so that was that was also kind of a, a hard time because I had to kind of redefine what it meant for me to be an artist. And that actually is when my 
great interest in collage and like kind of working with fragments and and bits and pieces that gather over time that really got cemented at that time yeah so what advice would you give to aspiring artists or those who are interested in making multimedia work i would stress the importance of experimenting and allowing yourself to try new things I always try to get my students to inquire into what are the ways that we kind of put limits on ourselves? Like, what are the, what are the ways that we're telling ourselves, oh, I'm this kind of artist, or, you know, I do this, but I don't do that. Figuring out who we are, of course, is a process of figuring out what we like and what we don't like. But there's also this way in which we have to start to inquire into what are the limitations we place on ourselves that are closing out possibility and what are the limitations that we place on ourselves that are opening up possibility. I think making a lot of work is a great way to figure out who you are. You know, sometimes you just have to make a lot of work and sometimes a lot of it's going to be bad and that's okay. You know, I think sometimes we live in a culture that doesn't um, know what to do with failure or failure is to be avoided at all costs. And I just, there's no way you have to engage with failure as a young artist at, at any age, to be honest. Barbara Campbell Thomas's series Numa is on display at the Ruffin Gallery until December 18th. You can see photos of the works online and schedule an appointment to see them in person on the Ruffin Gallery's website. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marena Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Charlottesville Soundboard. <laughs>